All right, we're talking about worship. We spent the last two weeks talking about worship as warfare, that our worship is spiritual warfare. So I'm going to read to you, our text today is going to be from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Let's read that. Revelation 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, that it is the power of God to salvation. Lord, take this word, take this gospel, let it change us. Let it transform us. Father, let it break the hard places of our life that we would be a people conformed more and more each day to the very image of the Son of glory. We ask this, Father, that you would be glorified in all things through your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'm going to talk to you about worship and authority. Worship and authority. So the world teaches us that we can go our own way. They even write songs about it. And we're told that we can formulate our own truth, our own belief system. And this is called moral relativism. And moral relativism is a system of belief where there is no absolute truth, but each person, each one determines their own truth, their own way, their own system of belief. Or as the Bible describes it in Noah's time, and Jesus says in the last days, it will be as it was in the days of Noah when men each did what was right in their own eyes. What the Bible calls moral relativism is simply this, each man doing what is right in his own eyes. And you better not tell me that what I'm doing is wrong, because that would be offensive. And that's not right for you to tell me that what I think is right is wrong. And it's not right for me to tell you what you think is right is wrong. And the reality is we're both wrong. Because it doesn't really matter what I think is right and what you think is right. What only matters is what God says is right. And God doesn't have relative truth. God is the absolute truth. So this term moral relativism, the world is a great proponent of moral relativism, but moral relativism is simply just another word for idolatry. That's all it is, is idolatry. This is a season, remember when we began this series, we're leading up to Easter in this Lenten season, we, we said this was a season of reflection, repentance, and renewal. 
We're called to be a people who know and submit to the authority and the rule of Christ over all things. That's what we're talking about today, worship and authority. When the church worships, the church proclaims and enforces the authority of Christ, and that opposes all idolatry especially the idolatry of moral relativism. And each week when we assemble together here for worship, we conduct warfare in the realm of the Spirit. And through each act of worship, whether it's giving your tithe, singing your songs, reading the children's story, hearing the call to worship, joining in the prayers for the needs within the body of Christ coming forward to receive prayer. Whatever act of worship you participate in or witness or are a part of, those acts of worship personally and corporately through those we affirm and we proclaim the authority of Jesus in heaven and on earth. And our worship stands against the idolatry of our age as a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we come here each week to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. The very act of us being here is a declaration that Jesus is Lord. The state is not Lord. The president is not Lord. You're not Lord, I'm not Lord, it's not what I think is right, it's not what you think is right, it is what Jesus Christ, the Lord, has declared to be right and true. And in this text that we read from Revelation eleven fifteen, the saying, the voices in heaven were declaring this reality, this truth. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, because those words are recorded for us in the book of Revelation, unfortunately, many Christians today think that those words speak of something that's going to happen sometime in the future. In other words, if we're not careful, we'll read Revelation eleven fifteen and think that that is describing something that has not happened yet, but it is something that will happen sometime in the future because unfortunately we read the book of Revelation because we've been conditioned through our modern theologies that most of the book of Revelation is about something that is yet to happen. But if you would actually take the time to read your Bible and read carefully what it clearly says in the book of Revelation, John is writing to the church of his day, and he says these things will shortly take place. In fact, at the end, he says, don't seal this book up. Remember, God told Daniel, seal the book up because the things you see and the things you're writing about aren't going to happen for a long time. You know how long it was? It was... Less than 500 years after Daniel wrote his prophecy, that, that prophecy was fulfilled, unsealed. Here is John writing to the church of his day, and God says to John, don't seal this up because this is going to happen very shortly. 
Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for more reasons than we can go into in the few minutes I have left. But let's just take this verse, Revelation eleven fifteen. Let's just take this verse and let's understand it in the context that the book of Revelation, it is actually called the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's not the revelation of the end of the world. It's not the revelation of horrendous apocalyptic destruction coming upon the earth. That's not what the book is about. The title tells us exactly what this is about. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, who is Jesus Christ? Well, right here, Revelation eleven fifteen tells us that he is the one that the kingdoms of this world have been delivered to. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. That is not something that is going to happen in the future. That is a present reality. The promise that he shall reign forever and ever is not a promise that will come to pass in the future. He is reigning right now. We may be tempted to believe, and we very oftentimes are, tempted to believe that the devil is in control of this world. Let me assure you there is nothing farther from the truth. The devil is not in control of this world. Jesus Christ, based on not what Pastor Jeff says, but based on what God has declared in his word, the Bible declares that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, right now and for eternity. Now you might say, well yeah, you know Pastor Jeff, though, the book of Revelation is real controversial and there's people that believe all kinds of things and how, why, why do you get to say whether that's present or whether that's yet to be future? Okay, well let's go back to the Bible. Let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. Remember, I'm going to say it to you again. The best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. Not so-and-so's commentary of the Bible. Not so-and-so's book about the Bible. The best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. So let's look at the words of Jesus spoken to his disciples and spoken for all the church throughout all the ages. Matthew 28, 18, verses 18 through 20 commonly called the Great Commission. This is Jesus. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, Jesus is saying this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Let's just stop right there for a minute. Do you know when Jesus said that? It was before John wrote his revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as he is getting ready to ascend to the Father, makes this declaration to his disciples and to powers and principalities. Angels and demons heard the words of Jesus, not just his disciples with him, but, but the angels and the demons, the powers and the principalities, the rulers of the darkness of that age heard the declaration of Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. How much authority has been given to Jesus? All authority in heaven and on earth. And when was it given to him? He says, I've got it. Jesus clearly said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we, right here, Christ Fellowship, we need to know that he has all authority right now, still today. All authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to Jesus. And in the book of Daniel, we see in Daniel's vision one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days to receive all authority. So let's go to the Old Testament. Let's look at this prophecy of Daniel. And let's look at Daniel's vision that was recorded for us in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel writes... I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now Daniel had this vision, pinned those words from his vision 400 plus years before the birth of Christ. And in that vision, Daniel describes the kingdom, the dominion, or the authority that would be given to this one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. He was given kingdoms. He was given dominion. And it's called everlasting dominion. He was given a kingdom and a dominion which shall not pass away. A kingdom that will never be destroyed. So let's go back to the Great Commission. Jesus standing with his disciples just as he's getting ready to ascend to heaven says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore. When will the authority of Jesus pass away? It will not. When will the kingdom of Jesus finally be overcome by the kingdom of darkness? It will not. So are you going to believe CNN? Are you going to believe the New York Times? Are you going to believe Time Magazine? Are you going to believe Fox News? Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the Bible? Are you going to believe what God has declared? Are you going to believe what you see in the TV news, what you see in the newspaper and in the reports? Or are you going to believe what the Bible says? Well, the, the, the news says there's death and mayhem everywhere and destruction everywhere. And the world is soon to end because we're driving too many cars and pumping out too much coal. And the polar bears are all dying. 
Therefore, we will all die soon. So we need to tax you a carbon tax based on the size of your carbon footprint. And then we'll save the world. Really? You going to believe that? You going to believe that? Do you know? Church, you better listen. Do you know there's a lot of people that believe that? There's a lot of people that believe that. There's a lot of people who believe it's up to man to save the world. There's a lot of people who believe what we're preaching and teaching here today is a bunch of nonsense. And it's leading to the destruction of the world. And it's what's leading to intolerance and racism. Because after all, we can go our own way. We can believe what we want to believe. We can each have our own truth. We can each develop our own belief system. We can take the best from all the best of the world's religions, if you want to be religious. We can take the best of of all the best and, and just create our own religion. Well, who's going to be the God of that religion? Well, I guess I will. I guess each of us will be our own God. That's what Shirley MacLaine says. I am God. So in this vision that Daniel has, he sees this one coming, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus Christ is the one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, his Father, and Christ was given everlasting dominion and glory in a kingdom that would not be destroyed. Jesus proclaimed himself to be that one like the Son of Man in Daniel's prophetic vision. Now we're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible, okay? How do we know Jesus was that one? Now we're talking about worship and authority. And God's authority does not have any limitation. So the God we worship is the God who has all authority to do what he deems good to do according to his will and pleasure. Matthew chapter 26 Did Jesus, in fact, declare himself to be this one like the Son of Man in Daniel's prophetic vision? In fact, who did Jesus actually declare himself to be? There are actually some ministers that I've actually heard say Jesus never declared himself to be God. That is so wrong on so many levels we can't even discuss it. Jesus absolutely declared himself to be God. Jesus declared himself to be someone very specific. And just because we don't comprehend everything we read in the Bible, just because everything we read in the Bible doesn't doesn't line up and measure up with what we want it to be, doesn't mean that's not what it is. So you don't have, and I don't have, the luxury and the right 
to cause the Bible to conform to my belief system, though that's what we do all the time. What is commanded, what is demanded by God is that we conform to the Bible. So we don't conform the truth to us. We must conform to the truth. Let me read to you from Matthew 26, 62 through 66. Now this is when Jesus has been arrested. He was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane and he was taken to the, uh, to the high priest. And they had a, um, they had a, a late night, midnight court session. And they're interrogating Jesus. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless... In other words, Jesus said, I am. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Does that language sound familiar to you based on what I just read to you from the book of Daniel? It should, because it's very familiar language. And that language was very familiar to the religious leaders interrogating Jesus that night. And when Jesus uttered those words, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven, then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Now you might read Matthew 26, 62 through 66 and not understand what the big deal was. But if you would have been a religious leader in Jesus' day, specifically the ones interrogating him here, when they heard Jesus answer to the question, who are you? Are you the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, yes, I am. But also this, you will see, you will see, Jesus tells them, you will see hereafter the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Immediately, they understood that Jesus was saying to them, I am the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. I am the one like the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite expression to describe himself was that term, son of man. Because it was the very expression that Daniel used in describing the vision. One like the son of man. Jesus, at the hands of his interrogators, was put under oath. And Jesus responded with the proclamation that he is the Christ, the Son of God. He also made clear that he is the one that Daniel saw in the vision and prophesied concerning. The one that would come in the clouds to receive all authority and dominion and rule. The coming of the Lord, or as Daniel put it, the coming on the clouds, is language that signifies the authority given to Christ 
for judgment. The religious leaders of Jesus' day understood this. The believers that received the revelation of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ, understood this. Jesus declared the judgment of this world as he was preparing to be crucified, knowing that he would ascend to the Father and receive all authority, including the authority for judgment. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The promise was that, he, that his coming would be for salvation and also for judgment. The promise to those religious leaders that interrogated him was that they would see with their very own eyes his power and his authority in his coming on the clouds for judgment that would occur with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in their lifetime. Jesus said very clearly to them, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power. Now, that didn't mean that they were going to have a Monty Python-like vision, cartoon vision of Jesus in the sky sitting on a throne by his Father. What that meant was, Jesus said, you will see that the judgment that I have prophesied and spoken concerning this city and this temple, you will see it with your eyes, you will experience it, and you will know that I am the one, like the Son of Man, seated at the power of at the right hand of majesty. When this temple is destroyed, when this city is destroyed, when those armies surround it, you will know that I, the one you interrogate right now, you'll remember I told you this, you will know that I am the one. Jesus promised that they would see this, that they would know that he was the Christ, the Son of God, coming with clouds, ruling all nations with all authority. The worship of the church witnesses the salvation and the judgment of God. The very gospel that we proclaim that saves men is the very gospel that condemns men. Because your acceptance of the gospel is your salvation, your rejection of the gospel is your judgment. The gospel works both ways. That's why when we worship, we worship a God and we give witness to his authority, not only for salvation, but also for judgment. The world doesn't like this. The world hates that because the world doesn't want to think about judgment. The world doesn't want to talk about judgment. And much of the church today doesn't want to talk about it either because it's too uncomfortable. Who wants to talk about judgment? Who wants to talk about wrath? Who wants to talk about those things? Let's just pretend like that's never going to happen and just keep doing what's right in our own eyes. But God says, no, you can't do that. And if we think our worship is just proclaiming the mercy and the kindness of God without proclaiming the justice and the wrath of God, we are mistaken Because there is no mercy and kindness if there is no justice. And God is a just God. The worship of the church cannot be true and right worship apart from the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God's salvation. 
it can be called good news because there is such a thing as bad news. We understand light because we know there is darkness. We understand warmth because we know there is cold. We understand good because there is evil. We understand there is good news because there is bad news. At the, at the heart of the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. There is no salvation apart from the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And the same gospel that saves wicked men is the same gospel that judges wicked men. The gospel will either break our hearts or it will further harden our already hard hearts. The same sinful wickedness that resulted in the rejection of Christ in that day is the same sinful wickedness that is resulting in the rejection of Christ today. God's judgment fell on those who professed to know the truth but practiced a lie. They practiced that lie in the name of the truth and they rejected the very one who is the truth. Today, much of the church is guilty of professing to know the truth while practicing a lie. And when the church embraces a lie, either through its active teaching or its passive silence, they invite the destruction and the judgment that sin brings upon a people. If you wonder what's happening to our nation, don't look any farther than the Bible. You don't need to turn on the news. You don't need to read a newspaper. Just open your Bible and begin to read it, and you will understand perfectly what's happening to our nation. Because we are a nation that is actively rejecting God. We are a nation that has become hostile to God. And that's not exaggeration. And if the church doesn't wake up and start dealing with the truth, that hostility will grow. But I have great hope in the grace of God. I have great hope in the good news of the gospel. Christ gave authority to his church to declare the truth in direct opposition to sin and the forces of wickedness that seek destruction leading to death. When the church worships, the church proclaims and enforces the authority of Christ in the earth. It gives witness to his authority to save or to judge sinners. It is the free grace of God that makes the difference for us. Whether we fall under the blood of Christ and his mercy or whether we fall under the judgment of God and his wrath, all deserve wrath you, really, you, you realize that, right, church? We all deserve the wrath of God. But all do not get what all deserve. In Christ, we are given undeserved grace. God's grace and God's salvation should inspire the child of God to worship. If God's grace does not inspire you to worship, there is something wrong. The grace of God should inspire us to worship Him. When the church worships in spirit and in truth, we proclaim His grace and His salvation. We proclaim His judgment and His wrath upon sin and death. When the church worships, it is a witness to His salvation as well as to His judgment. 
The destruction we see taking place in our culture at every level is the result of sin run amok. Sin that is unhindered and unchallenged will work its degrading and destructive power resulting ultimately in death. Thankfully, we serve a God of resurrection. And when the enemy is allowed to bring death, hear me, church, because the enemy cannot bring death apart from God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We don't have a devil running loose outside of God's authority. If that were true, then Jesus does not have all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus would have said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth except for that pesky devil who I can't catch up with. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And when the church worships, the church is declaring that authority. We serve a God of resurrection. The enemy, when he is allowed to bring death, we need to understand this. We need to know that God can raise the dead to life. Our worship gives witness to this powerful truth that is the power of his resurrection. So we see the cycle of death and resurrection taking place throughout human history. It's taking place in our midst right now. We're seeing a nation in its death throes. But here's good news. God knows how to raise the dead. So if our nation dies, God will just raise it back up to life. And when he does, it'll be more glorious. It'll be more powerful than it ever was before. It might not have the same flag. It might not look the same, who knows. Or you know what? God could cause the death and destruction that's taking place right now. He could just, he could just end it. There could be a great awakening. There could be a great reformation. There could be a great renewal and revival within the church. Don't look for it in the world because it's not the world that, that it has to come through. It has to come through the church. God didn't say, if the world, he said, if my people who were called by my name Stop looking at the world to change things. The world can't change anything. The world can only do what the world does, and that is live in death and destruction. It is the church that has been given the power and the authority to change things because God has given to us his name and his authority. So we will all experience the resurrection one day, either the resurrection leading to life eternal in the presence of God, or the resurrection leading to the second death with eternal torment and separation from God. Our worship reminds us, and it reminds the heavenly host of his authority to save and to judge. The worship of the church stands in opposition to idolatry. Remember, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Moral relativism is simply another term for idolatry. That's all it is, is idolatry. And when the church worships, the church is standing in opposition to idolatry. Whether you realize it or not, the very fact that you are sitting in this building today is giving witness to the heavenlies that you stand, that Christ stands in opposition to idolatry. The worship of the church accomplishes that that is the power of our worship 
to stand in opposition to the deception that man can control his life and manage his sinfulness through the knowledge of good and evil. This was the original lie perpetrated against man in the garden by the devil. And from the embrace of the lie in the Garden of Eden by our first parents, man has come to believe that we can manage ourselves, improve ourselves, and even save ourselves. And we can do this through our knowledge of good and evil. In the beginning, man rejected God, and we are still rejecting Him today by foolishly thinking that we can save ourselves. The world in its rejection of Christ believes it is not deserving of judgment. Men consider themselves good and believe they are able to improve their condition morally and in every other way on their own, through their own strength, through their own power, through their own willingness. Man looks to himself as his own savior and has made himself his own God. Man, in his rejection of Christ, is given over to the corruption of this world through lust. Man, in his lust, has come to worship and idolize himself. Can you not see that in our culture? In obvious and in subtle ways, man is the ultimate idol for the gospel to overcome. We're not, we're not going through the jungles chopping down totem poles. If you, if you just go back and take a survey of human history, you will see that the gospel has eradicated paganism and idolatry in ways that we can't even comprehend because it's so pervasive. I mean, the eradication that the gospel has brought to idolatry in those forms is so pervasive, we, we, can't even, we can't even think in those terms. That was the world. The world was pagan. It was full of idolatry. Statues, people worship statues, and, and we think that's silly now. But that doesn't mean idolatry has gone away. Idolatry hasn't gone away. It just has taken the ultimate form that it always existed in because man has always been his, who he idolizes. That's what false religions are really about. They're not about false gods. They're about man. So the worship of the church stands against idolatry by proclaiming Christ is Lord. This is the great war cry of the church. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible says that at the very mention of the name of Jesus, the demons tremble. So when the church assembles and worships and proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord, never doubt, even a humble gathering like this, never doubt that the demons tremble when the church assembles and worships her Lord. Amen. Let's get ready to come to the table. Well, let's stand. Each week when we assemble together for worship, we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Each time we worship, corporately or personally, we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. So whether here or whether in your home, 
When you worship, you are declaring Jesus is Lord of all. The rulers of the darkness of this age and the lustful, idolatrous humanity hate the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. That declaration of his lordship reminds them of their sin and impending judgment. It reminds them that they have been conquered and defeated and that Jesus Christ does not share his lordship with any other God or any man. Jesus is not a way. Jesus is the only way, and he is the only Lord. For the believer, that declaration that Jesus is Lord reminds us that we have been bought with a price, that our life is not our own, that we belong to Jesus. In Christ, your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and how you live matters in heaven, and it matters on earth. In Christ, we are literally carriers of his presence. Our life testifies of his power and authority and his rule over all things. Whether we realize it or not, our existence makes known to powers and to principalities the wisdom of God. Listen to Paul from Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Each week we assemble for worship. We are making known to heaven and to earth his wisdom and his authority according to his eternal purpose. The seemingly simple and harmless act of assembling for worship each week carries more spiritual power and gives more spiritual witness than most Christians may ever consider. We may all come here with various understandings of what our worship actually is and what it actually accomplishes. God commands His church to assemble together each week for an eternal purpose that He has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And as a side note, that's really all we need to know. Knowing that God has an intentional and eternal purpose in all things, each of us should seek to better understand and better utilize the power and the authority of our worship. God has chosen us to manifest his presence and make known his gospel in the earth. And through our life and through our worship, we give witness to the eternal truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. For the believer, our personal attitudes and our personal actions regarding sin are important and powerful because they give witness to our submission to the authority of Christ or they give witness to our rebellion against his authority. God, thankfully, is continuously graceful toward us in Christ in all of our ongoing failing and falling down. Our sin is washed away in Christ And that makes the conduct of our life, the manifestation of Christ in us, an even more powerful witness to his authority. As we reflect and repent and seek spiritual renewal, and I pray you are, may we each purpose to live and worship, to give witness to his authority and make known to heaven and earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.